we come here today to celebrate the reason that we come here every Sunday. The reason that we are a family connected to an extended family that stretches around the globe. We are here to celebrate the reason that we ultimately, that, that, that fear is not ultimately the thing that defines our lives. We're here to celebrate our, our hope, and that is that he has risen. Our text today is in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. We will start in verse 24. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting. Believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There once was a man named Thomas. And you may have seen his face in a number of places. Perhaps you've seen his face on a mountain in South Dakota. Or maybe you've seen his face in a coin from your pocket, or perhaps on rare occasion, a bill from your pocket. Has anyone ever seen a $2 bill? Kids, have you seen a $2 bill? Yeah, it's cool, right? They're kind of rare. In fact, they're, in fact, they're so rare that some cashiers don't know what they are, and they're thinking you're trying to give them fake money. But can someone from under the age of 12 tell me who I'm speaking about, which Thomas? Yeah. Thomas Jefferson. Very good. There you go. He's, you got some props today. You didn't think you were going to get that on Easter Sunday, did you? Yeah, yeah. School pays off, doesn't it? Thomas Jefferson, famous because, one, he was the third president of these United States. He's also known for writing a document called the Declaration of Independence. And of course, in one of the more interesting facts of American history, Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, both he and his friend John Adams, the second president. 
But of course, not only did Jefferson, was he known for writing an important document, he was also someone who took it upon himself to edit an important document. Has anyone ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? It was discovered that Thomas Jefferson, take a knife and he took his Bible and the portions of the gospel that talked about Jesus's claims of divinity or, or Jesus's miracles, such as the resurrection, Jefferson would cut those things out. But the things that he left in were things that he liked, like the moral teachings of Jesus. Well, maybe, uh, so let's just say it, Thomas liked some of the moral things of Jesus, but let's just say that Thomas had his doubts. Well, perhaps some of you have heard of a guy named C.S. Lewis. Uh, Kids, any of you read the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? A guy who wrote that, his name is C.S. Lewis. He too at one time had his doubts, but he eventually also, uh, well, he became a Christian. And he had a lot of wise things to say. And, And somewhere... He talks about people like Thomas Jefferson. He didn't name him specifically, but he talks about people like Thomas Jefferson who want to hold Jesus as this great moral teacher, but didn't believe that he was divine. And what C.S. Lewis said about this was that, look, if someone made the kind of claims that Jesus made, he could not be a good moral teacher if those claims weren't true. And this is, you know, this longer passage of Lewis is summarized by saying our options are either Jesus was lying and making his claims, so he's a liar, or perhaps he was a lunatic, that being he wasn't intentionally lying, but he was mistaken due to some sort of uh, mental delusion, or he was Lord, that he is exactly who he says he is. Those are the options. Some might also like to add, well, perhaps Jesus was legend, or perhaps Jesus didn't actually say those things, but those are legends that developed long before. We can quickly dispense of those by pointing out the fact that in the Gospels, we have these are early eyewitness accounts written too soon because legends take time to develop. They were written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. So that one's not such a good idea. But similarly to this idea, we can, um, because none of us believe None of us have seen the risen Jesus with our own eyes. Today, we who believe, believe based on the testimony of the 12 disciples. So we can run them through the same test. Either they are lying about seeing the resurrected Jesus, or they are experiencing some sort of, experiencing some sort of lunacy, you know, maybe they're seeing things, some sort of delusion, some sort of hallucination, or they're legit. They're making legitimate and true claims. So let's think through some of these. And of course, I won't take a lot of time here. This will be a bit of review. Maybe you were here last Easter when Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson investigated the evidence of the resurrection, right? Yeah, this will all be review. You, you look familiar. Have you ever seen Sherlock Holmes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, that's right. Sherlock wouldn't wear those pants, he's right. Um, no tie-dye on Baker Street. But were the disciples lying? Well, let's consider this. Most detectives will tell you that every crime has a motive. And more times than not, the motives come down to power, money, or love. And I, and I put love so that the adults in the room know what I'm talking about, right? 
Of course, the disciples in their lie would not receive any of these benefits. On the contrary, they would, because of this, would face difficult lives full of imprisonment and pain and a painful death. Who's going to lie about something like that when those are the things that you're facing? I mean, maybe one or two people, but, but 12? And that's the thing about conspiracies, is that conspiracies tend to work better when you have a smaller number of conspirators, say two to three, that have to keep the conspiracy together for a short amount of time, say a couple of months, but not 12 people over a decade. The disciples in this type of conspiracy, this is the, exactly the type of conspiracy that would fall apart. So it doesn't seem likely that they were lying. Well, what about this idea that they were hallucinating? They were seeing things. Well, psychologists today will tell you that group hallucinations do not happen. Hallucinations are private, individual matters had by one person. You can't have the same dream that I have, right? And, and, and hallucinations don't have the same kind of nature of, of the detail that we read in the Gospels. They, they, they touched Jesus. They saw him eat. You know, Jesus went out of the way to show that he was not a ghost. That's why he ate fish. If he's a hallucination, what happened to the fish that was just on the table? It also doesn't explain the empty tomb, nor does it explain the apostle Paul coming to faith, because hallucinations happen when you expect them and when you desire them. Paul didn't have either of those factors. So to say that they were lying, to say that they're hallucinating, these claims, these explanations would require a considerable amount of faith. But what are the lines of evidence we have? Well, we have two, one, the empty tomb and, that, and the appearances to the disciples. Now, neither one of these work by themselves, but together they form a better argument. The empty tomb by itself does not prove resurrection. After all, Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb, but she didn't immediately say, Jesus is alive. She was really confused by it. And they never would have come because of their theological categories to the conclusion that he rose from the dead from the empty tomb alone. And nor do the appearances by themselves prove resurrection, because if the tomb is not empty, the body's still there, clearly you don't have resurrection. But the empty tomb and the appearances together make a much better case of the plausibility that Jesus did indeed resurrect from the dead. Now, the question though, why didn't Thomas believe? Why did Thomas have his doubts? Because after all, he wasn't with the other 10 disciples when Jesus appeared to them. But did Thomas not have reasons to believe? Did he not have some forms of evidence? Is the message of this passage just have blind faith? I don't think so. I think Thomas actually had good reasons and some evidence to believe in the resurrection. For one, he had the testimony of the ten, the testimony of the other apostles. And that's not nothing, right? I mean, Testimony is counted as evidence in court. We, have, we don't have witnesses for no reason and just forget about what they say. But the thing is, is that Thomas, yeah, indeed, testimonies do require faith. You do have to have faith in what somebody says, but that faith is usually contingent on the character of the one giving the testimony. Could Thomas trust them? Well, after years spending time with them, he should have known whether or not he could trust them. 
And they, and they told him, but not only did they tell him, the verb tense here is that they kept telling him, no, no, we have seen the Lord. We're, we're not making this up. We know the difference between ghosts and what we saw and what we experienced. He breathed on us. And all 10 of us have the same story. Thomas, believe. Not only does he have the testimony of the apostles, he has the testimony of Jesus. Over and over throughout the Gospels, Jesus is calling his shots. We're going to go to Bethany. I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He does it. We're going to go to Jerusalem. And a couple of you are going to go fetch a donkey. You're going to untie it, bring it to me. If anyone stops you, tell them the Lord needs it. That will be enough. And that happens. Over and over through the Gospels, Jesus says, the Son of Man will be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Check. Handed over to the Gentiles. Check. Where he will be spit upon, mocked, and flogged. Check. And crucified. Check. But he will rise again on the third day. He's calling his shots all this time, but suddenly when it comes to rising from the grave, Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, the disciples were not there with breakfast outside of the tomb on Sunday morning, waiting and expecting this. But had Thomas only believed not only the testimony of the disciples, but the testimony of Jesus, he had a reason to believe because this whole time Jesus shows he knows what he's talking about. And of course, Thomas would have had access to the empty tomb. Take all of that together, he had reasons to believe. Now, it's not enough for Thomas, nor for anybody else who has doubts, including you and me. It's not enough for us to say it didn't happen. We have to explain with an alternative view of what did happen. So why was the tomb empty? Why did the disciples claim? And with that alternative view, you're going to believe it, and you're going to believe it by faith. And whatever your alternative view is, you need to consider, are you applying the same scalpel, the same close examination, the same level of scrutiny to your alternative view than you do to the resurrection? Have you questioned your doubts? Sure, by all means, question the resurrection, but be sure you question your doubts as well with the same level of questioning. Now, once again, why didn't Thomas believe? The thing about doubt is that it's not only an intellectual issue. It's not only about evidence. You come to your beliefs not only through logic and evidence and thinking it out, a lot of the things you believe you come to by your emotions. And so I think Thomas's doubt wasn't just an intellectual thing. I think for him, it was also an emotional thing. Well, what was he thinking? What was he feeling? The text doesn't exactly tell us, but I don't think it's a hard stretch. I think it's a pretty good guess to say that Thomas was disappointed. 
Look, I, I had my hopes and expectations so high, but on Friday they came crashing down. And I'm sorry, but it was too long and too hard of a fall for me to allow myself to hope again. I'm not going to go through that again. It's going to take extraordinary evidence for me to believe because I can't put myself through that once again. And I think that perhaps people today also don't believe in, have not put their faith in Jesus due to their experiences and their disappointments in life. And to them, the way they see the world, the way that they, their experiences have shaped them, make them think that somebody rising from the dead is too good to be true. It's too good to be true. It doesn't match up with the kind of world I think we're living in. But other people have other emotional reasons for why they doubt or for why they have not come to belief. Some people... It might not be that they've examined the claims of Christianity, but they've examined the lives of Christians. Some of the Christians they've interacted with, they say, I, 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 I don't want to be like them. I don't want to be like them, and I'm not even going to bother to examine their claims, because apparently it doesn't work. Perhaps you've heard some deconversion stories. It's kind of a popular thing right now. Uh, on the internet at least, you'll hear these deconversion stories, people who were once were in the faith and now say that we no longer believe. And a majority of the time, in fact, I don't think I've even heard one, I don't think I've heard one time that this deconversion story involves close examination of the historical evidence for the resurrection. That just doesn't play in to why the deconversion happened. It's not somebody changed their mind about the resurrection. It's they had a falling out of a relationship within the church, or perhaps some sort of spiritual abuse from leadership. And that is a horrible thing, and I, and I absolutely hate that that happens. But I would say that just because Judas exists does not negate the truth of Jesus. And so perhaps as Christians, as we patiently listen to anyone with a deconversion story, we, we listen to them, we try to empathize with them, but we could also gently challenge them by saying, look, I hear you, I've heard you, I, 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 that's horrible, but, li li but listen, at one time you said you had faith. So at one time you believed that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me ask this, at what point and for what reason did you decide to no longer believe in the resurrection? Because that brings the central question back to the table. And look, I'm sorry, it's not about how you feel and it's not about your experiences. Christianity is, it's whether or not it's true. It's whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. That is the central question that we have to grapple with. Some others might have different reasons for not believing. There's, um, there's a philosopher named Thomas Nagel, uh, another doubting Thomas. Kids, you've been reading philosophy lately? Who's into philosophy? Yeah, kids, yeah. Kids love philosophy. I mean, and really, because really what philosophers do is they take the questions of a child. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What does this all mean? How should we live? They take the questions of a child and make them really, really complicated. And they found out a way to get paid doing it. 
Well, Thomas Nagel is a philosopher, another doubting Thomas, who said, look, I don't believe, but I am, I am concerned, I am disturbed by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know do believe. So he's saying, look, I, I recognize it's not a matter of unbelievers are smart and believers are not smart, that there's not any compelling evidence. But he's saying, look, I don't believe, and naturally I hope that I'm right, but here's the thing. He says, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to live in a world like that. So there you have it. If, if some people want to say that religion is some sort of psychological form of Freudian wish fulfillment, well, then so is atheism. Um, I don't want there to be a God. And I think that part of this desire for there to be no God has to do with people want to be the ones to determine what's right and wrong. People want to be the final boss, the final authority. People want to be autonomous. They don't want to believe in God or the resurrection because that means that they themselves are not God. And it's our human nature to buck against that. Now, one thing that we can do as Christians uh, in concerning our witness with these kind of um, emotional responses to, you know, to doubt, particularly like not wanting it to be true, you know, uh, Blaise Pascal is another philosopher. He said, we need to make religion attractive. That, that's not to, you know, put makeup on it. It's just let it be what it is, but present it in a, in a compelling ma manner. He says, make men make people wish that it were true and then show them that it is. So it sounds like what he's saying is like, look, yeah, we can make arguments and all that. We can reach the head, but we also, with our imaginations, need to get creative and to reach their hearts as well. Because I think some people are under the impression that the gospel is about rules and, and, they, and they see the Christian culture as, as really stuffy, but we need to show that the creativity. We need to show the wonder of forgiveness, the wonder of having a new identity and being adopted into the family of God. We need to show them what it looks like to suffer well. You know, 1 Peter 3, he talks about always be ready to give an answer when anyone asks you for the reasons of your hope. Peter is anticipating that people will be asking you about your hope. You know what compels people to ask you? How do you deal with suffering? Are you living in such a way that people are compelled to ask? Does your life demand explanation? We also need to have a more compelling view of, of the future hope. You know, um, oftentimes people have this impression that Christians teach about heaven, that we live in this, this disembodied experience, living up in the clouds, and, and they, they think it, it just sounds boring. That, that was one of Mark Twain's uh, critiques. He's like, heaven just sounds boring. Why would I want to go and be bored with you guys every Sunday and then bored with you in eternity? But our future hope is not boring. It's anything but. It's not about going somewhere. It's a, about a new creation. It's about the world you always wanted and beyond that. Um, I have a, a number of slides I wanted to show you, just kind of depicting some 
of just natural beauty, some uh, beautiful landscapes, and those are going to run. And, and I want us to use logic here and consider, like, look, if, if we see these things and we are just kind of awe-inspired and, and we think that we are, we think this, these things are just so stunning and we spend a lot of money to get to some of these places, we're drawn to them. Look, if we find such beauty in a fallen and corrupted creation, cre- uh, corrupted because of sin, what will a new creation without sin be like? Just use your imaginations. What will an unfallen world be like if this is the beauty in a fallen world? What will food taste like? A nice, a nice ripened strawberry on this world is amazing. What will it be like in an unfallen world? What will music be like? So we need to appoint, we need to allow them and point to use the Christian imagination to, to point to the goodness of this, to the goodness of the future to come and, and just tell, show people like, look, all the stories that you love, the stories of of justice being done, of evil being overcome, stories of a rescue through, his, uh, through heroic sacrifice and happily ever after, a cursed land blossoming with life once again. You love those stories because that's pointing to the real story. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien told to C.S. Lewis, although before he was a Christian, all those pagan myths that you love, those ancient myths, you love them because they're pointing to the true myth. So we need to make people wish that it were true and then show them that it is. Well, this encounter with Thomas is, is really quite remarkable. It's, you know, Thomas is saying, I won't believe until I see the, and, and touch the, the nail prints in his hands and feet and in his side. And then Jesus shows up and says, go ahead. I mean, that's amazing. Jesus comes and says, put your fingers here. Like, how did Jesus know what Thomas was thinking? How did he know that he said that? Because he wasn't in the room when he said it. Thomas recognizes this. And he comes out with this great confession, the greatest confession in the New Testament, my Lord and my God. Now, of course, Thomas is stuck with this unfortunate moniker, (laughs) this unfortunate label of doubting Thomas. I mean, one weak moment, doubting Thomas. We don't call him him denying Peter, (laughs) right? I mean, all all the messed up things his disciples did, we don't stick anything else, but doubting Thomas, no. He had one moment of doubt, but look, he is confessing Thomas, my Lord and my God, and he would take this confession with him to India, where he would then, and he he was so compelled, so convinced of this interaction with Jesus that he gave his life for it. How do you explain that? But of course, you know, Jesus... um, you know, this is a conversation between Jesus and Thomas, but what's cool is that Jesus knows that this conversation will be recorded and will be read for generations. And so Jesus here includes us into the conversation. It's like he's winking at us. Thomas, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who do not see and yet have believed. Jesus extends a blessing to people who weren't even born yet. 
And I think that's really cool. Thomas, with his confession, my Lord and my God, many commentators think that this is the climax of John's gospel. It brings it full circle. And it's right before John gives his purpose statement. Because John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And here with Thomas, we have the most, um, the most explicit statement of Jesus as God, as, as Lord, from human lips. And John then tells us, these things were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Look, John was not satisfied to allow you to believe that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. To believe that, and could, because if Jesus is just a good moral teacher, he's just somebody that you can take advice from, you know, take it or leave it. But if Jesus is Lord and God... He's more than just someone you take advice from. He's somebody who you owe worship and allegiance to. Because as God, he defines reality. He defines your humanity. The oxygen you're breathing right now, it's his. He's given it to you. And so we have to make a decision about this Jesus. So not only does this passage provide for us truth for our heads, it also provides for us grace for our hearts. And it does so in the scars of Jesus. I mean, I mean, think about this. Think about the fact that, you know, Jesus, for the most part, now resurrected, is, is glorified, has a much more youthful, youthful um, look to him. I'm certain he's no longer, you know, bruised around his eyes where they hit him and the, the lashes on his back were probably gone, but he, in a resurrected body, keeps the scars on his hands and feet inside. Why? He didn't have to, right? Jesus could put an ear back on a person. He could certainly heal his own scars. Why does he keep them? These are the scars of his glory. These are eternal reminders of his grace. And I can't prove this, but I think instinctively, I believe that these will be the only scars in the new creation. And they will be eternal reminders of his love and of his grace to us. Not only did Jesus give Thomas truth that, yes, I'm here. Yes, I hear you. And this is what I've done for you. He gave him grace for his heart. I don't believe this passage is intended to shame us for our doubt. Because I think in a sense, to a certain degree, doubt can be a good thing. I've heard it said that a faith without doubt is like a body without antibodies. Doubt if, now, if you just sit with your doubt and let it gnaw at you, that's not good. But let your doubt push your, your curiosity, push you to questions, to get answers for your questions. Let your doubt cause you to wrestle and do that with God and do that within community. And you'll find that on the other side of your doubt, your faith will be strengthened. Because look, a lot of us have inherited our faith from our parents. But if we never doubt and we never wrestle with doubt and, and suddenly we come to this kind of like we experience doubt or we experience hard things in our lives, we're not going to be equipped to come through them on the other side. 
But there is potential for using doubt to make your faith stronger. I now want to offer an invitation. Because once again, we all have doubts. We all have doubts. And, and I want you to know that there's no shame in having your doubts, but I would encourage you to take your doubts somewhere. Ask the hard questions. Involve your brothers and sisters. Take those doubts to God and hear what he would have to say to you. Because look, I, I honestly believe this. I believe Jesus honors the prayers of those who cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. So if that is you today, you feel, yes, I believe in Jesus, I believe the resurrection, but I recognize our times, I feel shaky, I feel shaky, I have some doubts, and you want to come and just to pray to the Lord, you want to hear from Him because faith comes by hearing, then you come. You come here and you pray. And I hope, my prayer for you is that you would have such an experience of the presence of Jesus that even if you find that your arguments for him aren't all that compelling anymore, but you can't deny that experience of his presence. I also want to invite anyone here, maybe you haven't taken a step of faith yet, but you're starting to believe maybe there is something to this resurrection. Maybe there are, is compelling arguments. Maybe, maybe I should consider it. Well, I want to invite you to come and pray. Maybe it's not today. Maybe today isn't the day that you take a step of that full step of faith, but maybe you take one step and look, coming here and the, the kind of God, if you're there kind of prayer is okay. So you come and see what happens. I'd also want to invite anyone who would want to come and you're thinking about your witness in the world. You're thinking about the people who doubt and don't believe in your life. And you're wondering how does my life compel questions? Does my life demand explanation? And, and how can I reach people's hearts and make them wish that were true before I can show them that it is true? If, that, if you need God's guidance and God's wisdom in that, then you come and you pray too. So as the band plays, you come and respond and we'll see what the Lord does.